You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story. Offering insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma. A former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma. Stories that offer entertaining escape as well as insightful inspiration for the journey. In today's episode, we are continuing our exploration of Peter Daniel Young's spiritual journey in my spiritual coming-of-age novel, A Rediscovered Faith, a story inspired by my own crisis of faith 20 years ago. Stay tuned. Hey, Religious Fiction readers, this is episode 28 of the Religion and Fiction podcast, exploring chapters 26 through 31 in the fourth week of the Religion and Fiction book club, engaging my own spiritual coming-of-age novel, A Rediscovered Faith. I hope you've enjoyed the exploration into Peter Daniel Young's spiritual journey, which is, in many ways, an exploration of my own spiritual journey from 20 years ago, when I experienced a sort of crisis of faith that led to me at first reimagining my Christian faith, then rediscovering what Christians had always believed by going backwards to move forward in my relationship with God in Christ. This book club comes hot on the heels of me finishing up the final book in the Faith Reimagined trilogy, A Refined Faith. This book picks up, in many ways, where my story left off 10 years ago during a particularly difficult personal period in my life. And I've weaved many of those aspects of my own story into Peter's story, picking up where A Rediscovered Faith leaves off. I am launching that book in a few weeks on Kickstarter and would love for you to follow along and join in the fun to get exclusive signed paperbacks and hardbacks along with ebooks and audiobooks and some special resources to help encourage and inspire your own journey of faith. Get the details for the Kickstarter in the show notes and at faithreimagined.org forward slash Kickstarter. Now, there's a lot to explore in these six chapters, so we're going to skip the prologue and get right to the story. Here we go. So last book club, we ended with a conversation between Peter and his professor mentor, Calvin Van Dyke. And Van Dyke had the advice that ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. And in this set of chapters, this week, week four, we begin to explore further this very important theme in my book, that ideas really do have consequences. Next week, we will look at the outcome of those consequences for some of the characters. And this week, we begin to dive deeper into some of the major ideas that Peter has been wrestling with and his brother JT has been wrestling with and what they might mean for their own spiritual journey. First up, though, this week is a deeper dive into Lexi's story on a date at a restaurant that my wife and I frequented in downtown Grand Rapids called Republic over sushi and 
similar drinks as Peter and Lexi. And what we discover about her story is how much her childhood missionary experience as a missionary kid over in Thailand impacted how her faith evolved and the trajectory of her own spiritual journey. We've asked this question, I think, frequently throughout this week, and I'd like to ask it again. What is your own story with Christianity? Particularly, how has your own childhood or the past several years of your own life impacted your relationship with God and Christ and the church, Christianity? I know for me, when I was thrust into my own sort of crisis of faith, this period of wrestling and questioning, a lot of my own childhood faith experience directly impacted that period of my own life and how I related to the Christian faith and Jesus himself. Now, I think I've been honest that I had a good faith experience as a child. My parents were wonderful people, are wonderful people, raised me in a solid Christian environment that wasn't overly legalistic and majored on the majors, not the minors, as the saying goes. And even in my church, while it was a more fundamentalist variety of Christian evangelicalism, it was not like the typical legalistic fundamental church that I have had friends experience, where dancing and watching movies, playing cards, some of those tropes trotted out uh, to label and almost demean fundamentalist Christians, they that was not my experience. So when I talk about how my childhood impacted my future faith, I can be very thankful and am very thankful for the solid Christian rooting in the Bible and the fundamental aspects of Christian belief, while also acknowledging that a lot of the answers that I was given about the questions that people were asking were very disconnected from what people were experiencing in the modern world. For instance, a lot of questions surrounding human origins and the meaning of life and how God and Jesus impact our own life now before death later were sort of confusing to me and a lot of the questions my friends were asking during this season of doubt and season of questioning in my life. Now, those same questions that I wrestled with uh, from that season made their way into this story in the person of Peter Daniel Young. And we find that a lot of what he wrestled with, questions and issues, were equally disconnected between him and his friends in the same way that they were for me such as getting to heaven or whether earth was created in six literal days or millions of years. Same for how Jesus was presented to people, uh, sort of sold like a Kirby vacuum salesman, as Lexi framed it, and that Peter agreed. And I would agree as well. So often Jesus is sort of packaged like a sales funnel and offered like a set of kitchen knives to be sold to prospects rather than this intimate relationship 
that God offers every single person on the planet. And so Peter empathized with Lexi and some of the other issues that she had were particularly how the missionaries had zero respect for the Thai people and their culture and their history. They were, meaning the missionaries, the Western missionaries who came in, were the respectable, sophisticated, in-the-know white people who were coming to educate the heathen savages. And then the way they talked about Christianity with them was just nutso to me. And of course, the way Christianity was presented was as this sort of mystical land out in outer space called heaven that was sold, like that Kirby vacuum salesman. (laughs) And which reflects a bit of my own experience with the way heaven and Jesus is presented to people from my ministry out in Washington, D.C. A lot of that was covered in the previous book, uh, A Reimagined Faith, which reflected that experience 20 years ago. But here we are, and Alexi's sharing her story, Peter's sharing his story about the the ways that he and she were frustrated with really their faith from childhood and how that impacted their relationship now in that day with the faith. Think about your own questions, your own relationship from the past, the ways that you have heard Christianity presented or Jesus or heaven. How did those past presentations impact your own current questions or posture toward the faith? Speaking of questions, one of the things that helped Peter was prosurgent. And he talks with Lexi about how they gave permission to ask questions that he wasn't allowed to ask growing up. You know, for him, that was an attraction to this new sort of Christian movement, which was very similar to my own attraction to emergent and the emerging church, which this was sort of patterned after. I was appreciative of that posture that, hey, let's ask questions and push and probe this faith that we've been given. But then he also has begun to recognize this danger because of the doubt and the alternative answers to the questions that people are asking. And I mentioned last week that doubt nowadays has almost been turned into a virtue in and of itself, that it's noble to doubt rather than believing or having faith. That questioning seems to be the end of itself when it comes to faith now, rather than engaging in the act of believing as Jesus calls people into. And yet there is certainly room to create space to allow people to wonder and to even question. What are your questions of issues of faith or the faith, Christianity? What sort of questions do you find your friends or family or coworkers asking about faith, life, and everything in between? Obviously, the headlines have been really centered around questions of human nature, isn't it? Human sexuality, yes, but especially gender and the differences and whether or not they can be transformed and translated from one to another with such ease and modern convenience. Or issues of salvation, whether Jesus is exclusively the way to eternal life, or whether 
alternative ways and means, whether other religions offer a path to enlightenment or salvation or the afterlife, eternal life. Now, a lot of people become fearful when questions are asked, don't they? Inside the church, but even outside the church, whether they are religious questions or not, in this day and age, if you challenge the prevailing narrative or orthodoxy, you're looking for trouble. (laughs) Again, whether inside or outside the church. And Lexi sort of received that exact same response from her parents when she announced that she was going to take a break from going to church. Her parents were fearful in her language, and that drove up the tension between them. And I think that, again, cycling back to one of the themes of this book, drives that tension within families, doesn't it? Have you experienced that? Or how have you seen that tension ratcheted between parents and children when there becomes this disconnect between issues of faith? One of the responses Peter offers is the village metaphor, one of my favorite M. Night Shyamalan movies that centers around this exact same theme of fear. And not to give away the movie, although the book does that, the end result of this movie was that this village was a totally constructed edifice designed to keep citizens, and especially the children, in fear of the unknown and what was outside the walls of this community, rather than allowing them to explore and probe the world outside, they were forced to stay inside and they were regulated by a very tightly restricted code of fear. Of course, the money line from the movie that I quoted is, they wanted to keep their kids from wicked places where wicked people live. And it is, I think, that same posture toward the outside world that often gets Christians and Christian leaders and even parents into trouble when they try to tightly guard their children from the outside world rather than exposing it to them and counseling them, talking them through it. I can appreciate that, though, as a parent myself of little kids, nine-year-old, six-year-old, and seeing all the crazy and the chaos swirling around. The impulse is to protect, to shield to guard from the outside world, isn't it? But as Jesus says of his own people, even he didn't want to take his people out of the world. Instead, they were meant to be in the world, but not of it. So I wonder as leaders, parents especially, but even as Christian leaders broadly, how we can create an environment in which we don't shield people from the outside, from the world, even from probing and asking questions, while also guiding them towards truth in a way that's loving, but also protective. If you have any ideas for this parent, would love to hear them. So the book moves on to chapter 27, where JT and... Peter meet up with the prosurgent guys at Founders for a little powwow over 
Brian's book. And one of the striking things about this engagement back and forth is where JT begins to land. And for him, religion for the first time makes sense. A framing that Peter notes that it wasn't that Christianity or the Christian faith made sense anymore. Rather, it was religion itself. When asked what he means by that, he begins to sort of parrot Brian and his own ideas. He he says, uh, we need to find God in the other. We need to realize that our religious us is bigger than us, you know? That in the end, all will be well, man. All will be well. I think a pretty popular notion about the nature of other religious expressions and faiths, right? That we're all just very equal. There is no exclusivity that we're all right. In the end, we will all be all right. Which one of those persurgent guys, Rob, joins in and echoes, saying, All the energy that's expended deciding who's in and who's out is such a waste because God's family is bigger than our us. Bigger than what we make of it. And the rest nodded in agreement as they swallowed mouthfuls of beer. Except for Alex. He pushes back, saying that we need to be careful to dismiss the exclusivity of Christ along with embracing the openness of Christ. In other words, Jesus is the only way of salvation, and yet the boundaries of who can be in the family are expanded to include the entire world. So, two perspectives. One says all are in, and the other says all can be in through Christ. That's what the Christian faith offers in contrast to the rest of the world, and especially even more progressive versions of Christianity, which we'll get to in a bit more towards the end of this week in looking at another chapter that explores another book, especially in regards to people's own eternal destinies. At this point, though, I wonder where you sort of land, where you fit in regards to these perspectives. Do you land with JT, where you dig what this Brian guy is saying, that we are all right, that our us is bigger than an individual perspective on faith or salvation or the end? Or are you with Alex and what Peter also echoes, as well as what would be considered traditional Christianity, that there is this exclusive path into the house of God, paved by Jesus and his blood? And what's interesting is that Peter is alarmed at this exchange. It reflects kind of this growing alarm of Peter and the relationship that his brother JT has with these new prosurgent ideas from Brian. And then later, Trevor Bowles, which we'll get to. But here, he's seeing how his brother is captivated by these more progressive expressions of religious faith and the Christian faith in particular. I wonder if you've experienced a very similar reaction and response to watching somebody's own spiritual journey from the outside, or maybe alongside them, and they started trending in a direction that was concerning. 
How did you handle that? What was that like? How did it turn out between you and them? Well, to help him with this kind of rising tension, Peter turns to his friend Jake for advice. And what Jake offers is something that I've found has been helpful in my own relationships walking alongside people who have had similar struggles with faith and their questions. And that is this balance of both truth and love. Well, Peter is like, what does it have to do with anything? <laughs> and Jake says everything. John says in chapter one that grace and truth came through Jesus while the law came through Moses. Grace and truth. You need both. I need both. And James needs both. Love on him by being present with him, by listening to him, but also give him the truth. Because if you're not honest about what's what, then you're not at all loving. There's a rub, isn't it? Balancing both grace and truth in the midst of these tenuous relationships where people we know are asking hard questions, even stepping away from faith because of painful experiences or the confusion that comes from alternative answers offered from alternative sources, whether TikTok or the news or their professors, whatever. Even we need it in our own lives when we are navigating these same kinds of questions and struggling in our own spiritual journey. We need to experience grace from people standing with us, even somewhat grace from ourselves, giving us the permission to explore our questions. The grace from our Heavenly Father who is beckoning us into relationship. So yeah, we need grace in the midst of all of this turmoil and tension right alongside truth, honesty, what is real about the nature of reality and God's story and our story. So why do you suppose both are necessary, grace and truth? How can we deliver both to people around us, to ourselves? Who in your life needs to experience this marriage of grace and truth? Because as Jake wisely suggests, grace without truth is just dishonesty. One of the things that is brought out in this conversation with Jake is the identity crisis that Peter himself is experiencing even as he becomes uncomfortable with the change that he sees in his brother. He's seeing change in himself. And that change is brought to light even more when he has a conversation with Pastor Dave at lunch back at the cafe, explaining to him some of the tension and the discomfort he's feeling with where his brother is going and how he is changing. Where Peter is sits at this point is really caught in the tension between his past sort of fundamentalism or traditionalism and his present progressive trajectory or what he thought was going to be that trajectory. Because as it stands, he's kind of beginning to feel like he needs to go backward. Now, Pastor Dave sort of razzes him about this tension he's feeling and actually gives him some encouragement and advice that Peter begins to question. 
After explaining his own past, sharing some of his own history with questioning and pushing back, Pastor Dave offers this bit of advice. He says, What I meant with all of this was every generation is called to reimagine what it means to be Christian, Pete. And then Peter sort of sits there and he thinks to himself, Every generation is called to reimagine what it means to be Christian? Interesting. What do you think about that? What do you think about that suggestion, advice that every generation needs to reimagine the Christian faith? You know, we've been doing that for the last several decades when it comes to one aspect of Christianity, and that is the way that the Bible has talked about human sexuality, marriage between a man and a woman for life. Others have tried to reimagine eternal life and who goes there and who doesn't. Some of these conversations came out almost a decade ago, which actually fed into the next chapter regarding questions about heaven and hell and universalism, as it's called, a a universal salvation where everyone in the end will get in. What do you think about that notion that We just need to reimagine what we believe, every generation. What do you think about Peter's pushback in his silent contemplation of that? As he says, in the end, isn't their quest a redefinition? Don't they want to redefine Christianity for our new age? And what happens when you simply redefine it to fit your current age? Aren't you just giving up? Aren't you giving in? in order to please your cultured despisers? And what right do we have to fiddle with and tweak and redefine or reimagine in the sort of popular language? Who are we to have the right to redefine or reimagine a faith that we've been handed down through the generations, 2,000 years now? And what happens when we do? Peter begins to find out in the next chapter, 29, when he shows up to a book signing for Trevor Bowles' book, Love Will Win, which was based on a cultural phenomenon about 13 years ago now, I believe, from another pastor named Rob Bell and his book, Love Wins. A lot of my commentary and the actual language surrounding heaven and hell and this universal salvation that he proposes in his book and at the book signing were drawn from this book, Love Wins, as well as a lot of the interviews he gave around the release of this book across the nation on book tours and in interviews on MSNBC and CNN and Good Morning America. The reason why I felt it important to reflect what was experiencing then was because of how impacting it was culturally. You may not recall this because of everything that's happened since then, but there was a lot of chatter around the ideas that he was proposing. This idea that everybody is in, that there is no hell, and that in the end, everyone will win. That was the central idea of this book, Love Wins, that there is no actual hell, that hell is what we make on earth, and that at the end of the age, all will win. I'm not going to rehash the chapter here. You can go back and read it, but I do want to address a few things and ask a few questions. 
First of all, if you recall, Peter, when he went to get coffee for them, he heard a lot of people just sort of chattering about the book and how much hope he was giving them in these ideas. And I wonder about why people find such hope in such alternative versions of Christianity. Maybe you yourself have found the same kind of hope in alternative readings of the Bible or the Christian faith. Why is that? Why do you suppose that is? One of the things that I've learned in particularly pastoral ministry is that a lot of people's searching and questioning and pushing back and grasping for these alternative versions is that they oftentimes stem from more personal reasons than simply rebellion. You kind of heard a lot of that while he was standing in line from the way that people had experienced the Christian faith before. I wonder how your own experiences have impacted your own beliefs, where you've headed, where you've trended, based on your past experiences. Of course, we find that in many ways, JT's own grasping for this alternative was in many ways rooted in the way he had always felt about God and his relationship with him and his past experience of faith. He confesses to Trevor Bowles and all the others at this Barnes & Noble book signing that his parents couldn't handle his questions about his faith, that he'd never felt accepted by God, like he was going to hell because church doesn't agree with his life. And then he asked, what would you say about that? Well, Trevor says, man, great questions. Thanks, partner. Those are deep. So let's see if I can make it. First, it's not a threat to ask questions. In fact, I'd say your parents... In fact, I'd say to your parents, it's honoring the mystery of God's love. The Bible itself is a conversation. A question is not a walk away from God. It's a walk toward God. It's all orthodox. It's all part of tradition. Then after getting some hand wave signals from Barnes & Noble employees, he ends the book signing by encouraging Grand Rapids, Michigan to experience this massive, expansive, infinite, indestructible love that has accepted you all along. Except that this love accepts you. A love that's as vast as the universe and as tiny as the cracks in your heart that no one knows are there. And may you know deep down that love will win. Thanks, everybody. And then James rises to his feet, claps, blinks away several tears, others join him, and Peter's left sort of speechless. (laughs) And as he's racing home, he wonders aloud, what does he find so attractive about Trevor's teachings? Then he has it. Hope. James found the hope he had been looking for, perhaps his whole life, in Trevor's gospel. To James, how Trevor talked about sin, Jesus, heaven, and hell was far more hopeful than he'd heard before, than how the faith of his childhood talked about those important Christian ideas. Then he wondered where those ideas would take JT. Of course, one of the main ideas of the book is ideas of consequences. And I wonder about the ideas in this chapter in particular and Trevor's response here. Even what JT voiced himself. Can you identify with JT? Wondering if God loves you, if you'll make it or go to hell because of the way you live, because of not attending church or whatnot. 
Do you know of JTs that have a very similar perspective who are looking for hopeful teaching? Why might JT not have found such hope in the past faith of his childhood? And what would you yourself say to JT? I'll tell you what I would say. (laughs) I would quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel. That's the essence of God's story of rescue, isn't it? God creating a very good world on purpose and with purpose, creating us in the same way to reflect his glory, to join with him in ruling this world. Of course, we rebelled against him and plunged this entirely good world into evil chaos and in death. But God did not give up on us. He came back to the garden, our ancient ancestors, Mama Eve and Papa Adam, to humanity, to re-engage relationship with his image bearers. Eventually, he raised up a people who would reflect his glory and purposes on earth, the children of Israel. They failed just as much as our ancient ancestors did. And all along the way, God was making preparations to ultimately show up in the neighborhood of humanity itself, in the person of Jesus, doing what we could not do ourselves, living the life we should have lived perfectly, dying the death that we should have died in payment for our sins on the cross, paving the way for our everlasting eternal life with him and the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection from the dead and the life to come when Jesus Christ returns. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the essence of the love of God, the crazy love of God in Jesus Christ, available to all, but required to be accepted by all. You see, that's what was missing from Trevor Bowles' response. It wasn't that love was expansive, that the love sort of came and filled the universe. No, it's that God's love in Jesus did. A very specific and particular love displayed on the cross. A ransom death for humanity, for our sins. A free gift that everyone is invited to accept and receive. And no amount of reimagining or rejigging or redefining generationally is going to make that more hopeful. In fact, it's the exact opposite. (laughs) It makes it far less hopeful because it's far less powerful. And it seems like Peter begins to realize this in the next chapter in his conversation with Lexi, looking at these villages and how you've got the former village that he came from, fundamentalism in that framing, only to move to another village, the prosurgent progressive village, both with very tight boundaries around certain belief systems. But rather than finding freedom from either one, he began to find freedom from the vintage Christian faith by going backwards to this single strand binding Christianity into a single story of rescue. The one I just told, 
Creation, rebellion, rescue, recreation. It's just like Jude 3. The once for all faith entrusted to God's holy people. That's the way that the Bible has talked about this story of faith. Once and for all, given to God's people to enjoy, rest in, contend for, preserve, and pass along, remaining loyal to it along the way. And it's that loyalty to that once-for-all faith that also begins to impact Lexi, doesn't it? She uh, reveals she's been reading the book of Mark because of how he has navigated this ongoing crisis, this ongoing change of his faith along his spiritual journey. I wonder how others have similarly impacted your own faith experience, your own walk with Christ, your own journey of faith. Who have been those people that you've looked to in their own wrestling and pushing back their own loyalty to the story of God's rescue? How did that shape and mold your own walk and journey of faith? I think it's good to once in a while take stock of that, to look back and remember those people from that great cloud of witnesses, as the book of Hebrews talks about, those dear men and women who have faithfully followed Christ, offering an example for us to follow. And on the flip side, how might you be able to mirror that same loyalty and faithfulness to others in your life? Loyalty. Lexi speaks of that very interesting character quality of Peter, framing him as a loyal radical. What does she mean by this? Isn't it that instead of leaving faith behind or reimagining or redefining it, instead he's rediscovered it anew to better the world, to better the church? Peter has remained loyal in his commitment to Christ being in the world, but not of it, nor reshaping his faith to fit the world or to accommodate the world. Loyal radical, how would it look in your life to take upon that same perspective of your walk with Christ? To remain loyal, committed to the once-for-all faith, while sort of radically connecting it to our world. Far easier to leave behind the faith than to remain committed, isn't it? So Peter's a loyal radical, but it's complicated by his relationship with Lexi. Because even though she likes Jesus and wants to follow him, she's also a Buddhist and is sort of interested, committed-ish to that alternative spirituality. And Peter doesn't know what to do with that. What does it mean to follow Jesus, but also still holding on to this other aspect, this other faith that she's sort of committed to. Of course, Peter puts his foot in his mouth big time and starts to get into trouble. He tries to cover it up by pivoting to his brother and his concerns about the ideas, the persurgent ideas that he has been feeding on for months and what sort of impact they might have on his life. Well, soon enough, we discover exactly how those ideas 
impacted JT. Because Peter gets a phone call from his mother saying that JT's in the hospital, that he needs to come quickly, and it looks like that he tried to kill himself. Now, there are a whole lot of issues wrapped up in this particular angle to the story that we'll get to in the next week, the final week of the book club. But leading up to that, I want us to consider the gravity of ideas. And yes, their consequences. It might be helpful before we get to the next final week and then last of the chapters to sit down and consider the prevailing ideas of our own day, both in a cultural but also spiritual sense, and how those might have grave and lasting impact upon the real lives of real people and their real eternal outcomes. Because if the gospel is life, if God's radical revolutionary story of his crazy love in Jesus is literally what leads to the stuff of life in this present life and also in the life to come, then the antithesis is also true. The anti-gospel, these false gospels in the world, lead to death. And given the trajectory of JT's story and the false stories that he began to follow, if you haven't done the reading yet for next week, no spoilers, but it's a foreshadow of what is to come which we'll tackle in the last chapters of A Rediscovered Faith next week. Thanks again for listening to the Religion and Fiction podcast, following along our exploration of Peter Daniel Young's spiritual journey in A Rediscovered Faith. We'll tackle the final chapters 32 through 39 next week, then gear up for the final book, A Refined Faith, released on Kickstarter. Get those details in the notes below and at faithreimagined.org slash kickstarter. Grace and peace to you, and happy reading.